Chapter Twenty Two of the Master Mystery. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The Master Mystery by John W. Gray and Arthur B. Reeve. Chapter Twenty Two. The sharp crack of an automatic echoed through the shack. The detective known as Jim had come back to consciousness, and now, from behind an overturned table where he had fallen, he started to fire shot after shot into the mob of emissaries. He had fallen in a far corner and could be reached only after an attack of some paces, and even the emissaries, numerous as they were, hesitated to advance on a determined man placed in such an advantageous position. Furthermore, the diversion caused by the shots had other effects. The sound of the shots brought Locke fully out of his stunned condition, and he started to struggle frantically in the meshes of the net that held him prisoner. The automaton, for the moment, ceased to follow Eva, and moved over to its men in order to take command and to direct their movements, while yet another detective came to his senses and began to threaten the mob. Locke was threshing about and was slowly but surely freeing himself. An emissary threw a chair, and for a moment Locke lay still in pain. But in another moment he was working even more frantically at the ropes and the net that held him. Eva started over to help him, but he shouted to her to stand back, since that would bring her in line with the detective's fire. The shots were flying over Locke's body as he struggled. Some of the emissaries went down. Others found places of refuge behind which they hid. Finally, Locke managed to kick his feet free of the net and, rolling and tossing, managed to work the meshes up about his shoulders and neck, thus releasing his hands. It was the work of an instant only now to slip the enveloping net over his head, and he was free. Locke rolled out of the direction of the revolver shots and toward Eva, who was now standing before a huge open fireplace. He was none too soon, for the moment that the automaton saw that Locke had escaped the iron terror, left the men and stalked ponderously over to crush out Locke's life. The two detectives fired point-blank at the monster, and both shots took effect with a ringing, metallic sound. But they did not halt the automaton an instant. Locke, reaching the fireplace, seized a pair of old tongs and threw firebrand after firebrand in the path of the advancing terror. To the automaton, fire was evidently quite another affair from mere puny bullets, for it not only paused, but came to a full stop, looking around as though in a quandary as to what to do against such a defense. This moment of hesitation gave Locke and Eva their opportunity. Calling to the detectives to cease firing a moment, they passed between friends and foes, dashed over to and up the attic stairs. As they reached the attic above, they were just in time to see Zita, still dressed in Paul's clothes, and Dora jump from the attic window. Although it was a low, rambling building, Still, it was a high jump, even for a man, and Locke was astounded that they should attempt such a thing, even in their undoubted state of panic. 
However, it gave Locke a splendid idea, which he acted upon immediately. Hooking his feet on the window frame, he took hold of Eva's wrists firmly and swung her far out of the window. Held in this way, Eva was only a few feet from the ground, and when Locke released her, she landed safely and almost without a jar. For Locke, always in perfect training, the jump offered no difficulties. In an instant he had rejoined her, and they were running away from the shack toward Eva's waiting car. Locke had an almost overpowering desire to return to assist his detectives, whom he realized might be in sore straits, but he also realized that his first duty was to this girl who was in his charge, on whom the events through which they had just passed had had a nerve-wracking effect. Again, he reflected, as he saw people coming down the beach, that the automaton and his men would soon be outnumbered and glad to flee. Quentin and Eva had almost reached the motor which Eva had left at some distance from old Tom's shack, and were passing a low clump of bushes when a low moan fell upon their ears. At first Locke thought that it might be a trap, and was for paying no attention to the sound, but Eva, womanlike, insisted. He investigated. Reclining on the ground and looking more like a little boy in man's clothes lay Zita. She was holding one ankle, and her face showed that she must be in great pain. "'Help me!' she moaned. "'When I jumped from the window I sprained my ankle. "'Dora helped me to this place, and then she left me and drove away.' Although this girl was his enemy, no thought of leaving her in this condition entered Locke's mind. Gently raising her from the ground, with the help of Eva, Locke supported her to the car. Locke still held Zita to ease her pain, while Eva took the wheel, and although they could hear shouts and even shots behind them, Eva drove slowly in order not to add to Zita's misery. It showed the sympathy of their characters that, much as Locke and Eva felt that Zita had injured them, nevertheless, pausing in a flight from deadly peril, they found it in their hearts to be kind to an enemy. Arriving at Brent Rock, they carried Zita to her room, and the family physician was sent for. He pronounced the injury slight and more of a strain than a sprain. While the doctor was at the house, he also paid a visit to Brent, who, while his mental condition had remained as apparently hopeless as ever, had gained much in strength, owing to the diet and restful care. He was now able to sit up fully dressed. As it was a case of drug poisoning, the doctor had thought it best not to allow the patient to relax too completely. But whatever the strange drug that had stolen away Brent's reason, the effect showed no signs of departure, and they were as much in the dark as to the antidote as ever. A few moments after the doctor had left, when he made his morning call the next day, the counsel of the corporation was announced. He was shown into the library immediately, and it was there that Locke and Eva went into conference with him. The attorney had brought with him many shareholders' proxies, and these he handed over to Eva. "'These proxies,' 
he was declaring, give you absolute control, Miss Brent. With them, you can force Mr. Balcom completely out of international patents. What's that you say? It was Balcom himself who spoke. How the man had got past the butler, who certainly had no love for him, was mystifying. Yet there he was, ready and eager to defend his interests. I was just telling Miss Brent, informed the lawyer, coldly, that with these proxies which I have obtained and just handed to her, she was in complete control of the company. And you, Mr. Balcom, interposed Locke, stepping forward, will play no further part in the activities of the company. Miss Brent desires your resignation to take effect immediately. Why, why, this is unheard of, absurd, sputtered Balcom. I'll, I'll, and his rage got the better of him. No, Mr. Balcom, again interrupted Locke, you will do nothing. It is I who will give you twenty-four hours to arrange your affairs with the company before I order your removal, or arrest. Balcom tried to remonstrate, to plead his innocence of any wrongdoing. Finding no sympathy by taking this attitude, his manner changed abruptly, and he attempted to bluster. A decisive movement toward the telephone on the part of Locke checked this and, chameleon-like, Balcom's usual suave manner came to the fore. He bowed himself out. "'It will, of course, be as you say,' he smiled oilily. Once in the hall, however, his manner changed again, and darkly scowling and biting his thin lips, he was about to quit the place when Zita, limping only slightly, intercepted him. "'Mr. Balcom,' she pleaded, "'come out the back way. "'I must see you alone a moment.' They tiptoed out to the grounds, and behind a hedge where they could not be observed from the house, talked. "'Tell me what has happened,' demanded Zita. "'Happened?' repeated Balcom. "'Why, they've thrown me out of the company. "'At least they think they have.' His mind was working quickly, and after a pause he turned to Zita sharply. "'Can you get Brent out of the house and bring him to me here behind the hedge at eight o'clock tonight?' Zita nodded in eager acquiescence and left him, returning to the house. That evening Locke, returning from a stroll around the grounds, noticed a movement in some shrubbery at the side of the footpath. He went closer to investigate, and a rough-looking individual broke from cover and ran away through the underbrush as fast as he could go. It was too dark to follow, and Locke hastened his steps to the house, fearing some new deviltry on the part of the automaton or his emissaries. He had just entered the darkened hallway when, much to his surprise, he saw the figure of a man leaning heavily on the arm of a woman descending the stairs. He stepped behind some portieres and waited until they reached the foot of the stairway. Then he stepped out and confronted them. Zita gave a startled cry and would have fled had not Locke caught and held her. 
As for poor Brent, he simply stood there, swaying from side to side and smiling foolishly. Eva heard the commotion and came running down the stairs. She was amazed until Locke explained the situation to her. Then her indignation knew no bounds. Putting her arms around her father, she turned to Zita. "'How dare you?' she demanded scathingly. "'For doing this, you will leave this house immediately and never return.' Zita, for a moment, was on the verge of breaking down, but recovered herself and with an angry retort on her lips went out, slamming the door behind her. Zita slipped around the house and to the hedge designated by Balcom as their meeting place. She was surprised but relieved when she did not find him there, and glanced at her wristwatch, which stood at a few minutes past eight. She was about to turn around when she caught sight of a bit of paper. Taking it, she read, "'Bring him to my rooms.' That was all, and the message was unsigned. Zita greatly feared Balcom's wrath at her failure, but nevertheless she started for his apartment. At that moment Balcom and the mysterious Dr. Q were talking in the latter's dingy laboratory. Dr. Q's mind, for the time being at least, seemed perfectly clear, and he had formulated a daring plan. "'Send Locke word that you will give yourself up,' he was saying, "'but tell him that he must come to your apartment to get you. I will do the rest.' Balcom left hurriedly and was driven directly home where he got Locke on the telephone and repeated the instructions that Dr. Q had suggested. "'Am I to understand that you intend to turn State's evidence?' questioned Locke doubtfully. "'Assuredly,' hastened Balcom. "'Then I'll be right over.' As Balcom hung up the receiver, he chuckled sardonically. He was just turning to an antique brazier to arrange for Locke's reception when Zita was announced and at once admitted. "'I've failed, Mr. Balcom,' she apologized. "'Failed miserably. Locke took Mr. Brent away from me, and they ordered me never to return to the house.' "'You little idiot!' Balcom almost hissed. "'I'll not tolerate a failure either. Get out!' Although Zita almost went on her knees in her pleading to him, Balcom was adamant, and finally she left in utter despair. Outside, she telephoned to Paul to see if she might induce him to use his influence in reinstating her in his father's good graces. As soon as Zita was gone, Balcom busied himself with the ancient brazier and was standing before a small image of Buddha. He took a small package and from it poured a powder into a bowl of the brazier. Then, going to the table, he wrote a short note, after which he went to a divan and awaited Locke's coming. Balcom had not long to wait. A ring came at the door, and Balcom leaped to his feet and lighted the powder in the brazier. 
Then he adjusted a gas mask that Dr. Q had given him, and returning to the divan, lay down, pulling a camel's hair coverlet well over himself as he awaited results. There was a rap at the door and a peremptory demand for entrance, a pause, and a whispered consultation outside. "'Open the door!' cried Locke again. As there was no answer, heavy blows were rained upon the door, and finally it gave way. Three men stumbled into the room. They stared about, then started to search the place. One by one they started to cough. Locke, who was the farthest away from the brazier, seemed to be the least affected. Finally he spied the note on the table and snatched it up. By the dim light he read, "'You will never live to capture me. The deadly gas is even now killing you.' Locke gasped. There was the sound of a heavy fall behind him. He turned and saw that one of his men was down. He took a step forward when the other pitched on his face. Locke tried to rescue them, but by this time the deadly fumes had reached him, and he, too, fell to the floor, coughing his life away. At that moment Balcom got up from the divan, and stepping over Locke's prostrate body, left the place, forgetting to close the door behind him. When Zita telephoned Paul, Paul made an immediate appointment for her to meet him at Dr. Q's, and when she arrived there, Paul was already in conference with the doctor. Over the telephone, Zita had already given Paul a brief account of what had happened, and thus the two men were prepared with a plan when she arrived. "'Get Ava to the hypnotists on River Street,' instructed Dr. Q. "'Tell her that I have been hypnotized and that under the spell I will tell all.' It was a desperate thing for Zita to attempt, after treating the Brent so shamelessly, but there was no alternative, for she knew well that with Balcom only a success would offset her miserable failure earlier in the evening. Besides, were not her fortunes tied up with Balcom, or perhaps with Paul? She did not demur, but left immediately for Brent Rock to make the attempt, revolving in her mind how she was to do it. Zita had difficulty in persuading Eva to see her at all, but once she had succeeded, the possibility that all the mystery might be cleared up appealed strongly to Eva, for Zita had framed her story cleverly and was playing desperately. "'Then I'll meet you at the hypnotist's in about half an hour,' agreed Eva, after Zita had told her how friendless she herself was and how both Balcom and Paul had refused her aid. Zita left Brent Rock alone and was passing a dark corner when a hand reached out and grasped her by the arm, and she heard a voice that she recognized. "'Your failure has made me redouble my efforts,' it hissed. I have just killed Locke in my apartment, and I... It was Balcom, but Zita waited to hear no more. Secretly she had always loved Locke. Though she had worked against him, 
the very thought that he might be dead shocked her. She tore herself from the grasp of Balcom before she could hear more, and ran like a deer toward the apartment. Fortunately, it was not far. She tore upstairs and through the door that Balcom had left open. Everything was as Balcom had left it, except that now the three men lay quite still. Zita staggered over to a window and threw it open. Next she got water and extinguished the still smoldering powder. Then, falling on her knees, she tried to help the stricken men. Not much time did she spend with the others, but to Locke, with great tenderness, she gave most of her attention. Tenderly she bathed his brow and frantically tried even to breathe her breath into his burning lungs. Finally she was rewarded by seeing him open his eyes and gaze around. He looked up at her. "'I'll atone for all the wrong I've done,' she sobbed. "'Only—' She would have asked him to love her, but she knew that it was useless and the thought of Eva caused the words to stick in her throat. Locke did not understand, and the look on his face showed it. "'I didn't want to give you up,' wailed Zita, now forgetting herself. "'I loved you. To prove it, I will help you now. The—' The girl you love is in terrible danger. You must hurry. It was only too true. Eva had driven immediately to the hypnotists, and he had been instructed about her coming. At his door she had knocked, and an old, evil-visaged man, in flowing robes which were marked in cabalistic signs, had opened the door. In true fakir fashion, he salaamed almost to the floor while in flowery language he bade her enter. Fearfully Eva stepped within. Signs of the zodiac, of crossbones and skulls, on walls and ceiling, met her gaze everywhere. In an alcove Eva could see a noosed rope hanging, for what purpose she knew not, but its presence she felt was sinister. I, I was told that a Dr. Q would be here, Eva faltered. I do not see him. Gracious lady, bowed the hypnotist, I will bring him at once. Pray be seated. Eva seated herself before a table upon which there stood a curious stand supporting many mirrors. She examined it closely and as she did so they all began to move. Each mirror moved on its own axis, and she watched with fatal curiosity. For now a bright light was cast from behind her on the revolving mirrors, and they formed a scintillating kaleidoscope that was bewildering in its intricacy. Eva quickly became fascinated. Then she was conscious of a drowsy feeling stealing over her. She strove to rise, but her knees refused to support her, and she fell back in her chair. The hypnotist now shut off the machine, and stepping before Eva, made several passes with his hands. Eva's eyes closed. 
The hypnotist turned and made a signal. Several panels opened simultaneously, and into the room there came a number of emissaries, who crept upon the now completely hypnotized girl. Nor was that all. A sound, as of the clanking of chains, was heard, and through an aperture in the wall larger than the others there stalked the automaton. At this very instant, Locke and Zita burst into the room and rushed toward Eva. The hypnotist slipped around them both and in a moment had caught Zita in his arms. She struggled to escape, beating him with her little fists in a fury of rage and fear. But he held her, and an emissary bringing ropes, with his help, bound her securely. As for Locke, he made a frantic attempt to reach Eva, but his way was blocked by a score of emissaries and the automaton himself. Desperately, Locke dashed at the iron monster, only to be hurled to the floor as though he were a tiny child. In another moment, the emissaries had bound him and carried him to the alcove in which hung the noosed rope. The hypnotist now pulled a lever, and the method of the death intended for Locke was revealed. Directly under the suspended rope was a trap door, which opened. Locke gazed down into blackness, nothingness. An emissary threw some small heavy object into the yawning hole. For a long time nothing was heard. Then, finally, far, far below, there came to their ears the sound of a distant splash. The fiendish plan was simple, to hang him and then to cut the rope. His body would go hurtling down to the subterranean river below and be carried out to sea. The hypnotist reversed the lever. The trapdoor closed. Locke was dragged beneath the rope and it was adjusted around his neck. Even in this awful moment his sole thought was of Eva. Would they throw her, unconscious, down the same yawning trap? Powerless he stood bound, fascinated, as he saw three emissaries seize her. But instead of dragging her to the trap, they dragged her toward one of the panels in the wall. What nameless torture was in store for her? He struggled furiously to get free to rush to her, but the noose only tightened on his neck. The hypnotist stepped to the lever that operated the trap under Locke's feet and began to pull the lever down. End of chapter 22 Recording by Roger Moline